Hey, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. I feel like messing with the normal order of things. How are you feeling? Whoa, okay. Uh, up first, I am uh, I feel like a busy guy with no calendar. I'm just, uh, just no idea where I am. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. I messed with the order. Yes, you did. Um, I messed with the order of everything. Now yeah. we're all off kilter. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I'm feeling all right. And, you know, this week I came up with a game that combines a bunch of other games that we've done before. Ooh, and okay. it also helps me out because I get to do some more decluttering. Oh, okay. Uh, nice. So it builds off that game. A few episodes ago, a few episodes ago I um, presented you with some books I was going to consider donating. You know, mm-hmm. gave you my case and let you kind of decide on whether or not I would keep them. And I thought this week we could make that one a little bit more interesting. Okay. Uh, so I've got a stack of five books here. I'm not going to tell you what they are, though. Okay. Um, instead, I'm going to, you know, use some lifelines. I'm good. I can either read the first and last sentence. Uh, I can read a random paragraph in the middle. Maybe I could try to describe what the the cover sort of looks like. Maybe something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, let you make your decision from there. So, oh, okay, so combining a bunch of our other reading games, but I have to decide based solely on that. Yeah. Okay. So I think uh, I think I'll do all three for each one. So we could try that out. All right. So you ready? For, you ready for the first one? Yeah. Do first and last of the first one. Okay. First, first sentence here. Creative writing must surely be one of the most satisfying occupations in the world. And as with everything else, the greater your skill, the more enjoyable your work becomes. And the last is, I feel like that myself, and I hope it's going to be the same for you. Whoa. Kind of dovetails nicely there. It feels like it's some sort of like instructional book about like how to write a short story or, or something like that. Um... Hmm. All right. Read something randomly from the middle. Uh, (laughs) Write either a sonnet or three haiku. Okay. Yeah. It's some like (laughs) writing exercise book. Um, And I'm going to make the judgment that if, if this was on your chopping block, then I think it's probably some like something that's a little bit more textbooky than it is like inspirational. Like I find that the best books for, you know, inspirational writing are ones that it's like, you know, have you read like Stephen King's on writing? Yeah. On writing is great. Yeah. So I've owned several books, like the one that you, I think that you have in your hand. And uh, I'm going to say Chuck it just because (laughs) I, I feel like, you know, those like overly instructional books where it's like, this week, write a short story. It's like less motivational than just hearing like general kind of like, like a master describing their process. So is that, am I fairly right there? Is it like some sort of instructional? You nailed it. Yeah. This is uh, teach your, it's a, I think it's part of a series, teach yourself series. It's teach Mm -hmm. yourself creative writing. I probably picked it up like probably 12 years ago or something for like 50 cents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just been sitting on my shelf. Or, Taking up uh, space. Yeah. 
But, you want to um, read to really do some to get the benefit of what you want to get from a book like that. I think you want to read like on writing or you remember I, I reviewed that book, something like an autobiography by Akira Kurosawa, the filmmaker. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like, like that where you want to read books like that. Actually, Werner Herzog has written several books. That's like inspiring that, stuff. they're inspiring just because it's like, wow, like this person is psychotic. So I want to be like them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but okay yeah I, I think i agree with you on this one but a little bit more about it like the cover is this great kind of 90s style where mm -hmm. it's just uh <clears throat> a bunch of words overlapping each other in different fonts and different colors like nice. words like finding a publisher and dialogue and wow. characterization and novels and uh, nice a nice 90s style and the best part about this that i only discovered uh when i was set up to do this game is that this book was written by a mrs diane doubtfire so oh mrs doubtfire. doubtfire yeah that's uh i wonder if that person's really named that or if it's some sort of uh ghost writing <laughs> title but yes definitely from. chuck that one out no, it's from 83. So, so it couldn't be a reference the movie. to the actual Delphire. Yeah. Nice. All right, so that one's gone. That was good. All right, next one. I'll give you a hint that this is a uh, Dover Thrift Edition. Ooh, okay. Right. Usually some good stuff in there. All right, first sentence. $1.87. Okay. Okay, last sentence. <laughs> Ever try witch hazel and oil of wintergreen? Weird. A dollar. Okay, read like something from somewhere randomly in the middle. Styles from nowhere style. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Nashville occupies a foremost place among the manufacturing centers of the country. Hmm. <laughs> that gives it away nothing. So a dollar eighty-seven cents. Then something really weird about like herbs and spices or like potions or whatever. So wait, I actually have to make it. I think I have to make this more fair. Um, for the last sentence, at least. Let me. Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, the revised last sentence is. They are the Magi. Oh, they are the Magi. Hmm. It's some weird, like, you know, I struggle with these sometimes of, like, there's, like, magic going on, but it's also firmly in the real world. And I feel like only a few people do that really well. J.K. Rowling, Stephen King. Um, but in another sense, a lot of... Novel. I don't really like the type of novel where it's like, he was a kid in New York and now he's a wizard. Um, <laughs> wow, it's hard to say. I mean, basically, if it was, again, I'm referencing back to like, if it was already on your chopping block, like it's taking up space, then you probably were like not grooving on the idea that this is like a semi real world fantasy and you just like weren't that into it. So I say, I say you could get rid of it. What are we talking about here? Okay. This is actually uh, 
The Gift of the Magi and Other Short Stories by O. Henry. Oh, so you know, so it's like a short story collection. So that stuff came out of like the middle of nowhere, like the Nashville stuff and everything. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't quite fair. The last sentence I had to go to the the last <laughs> sentence of the first story. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't really I know much about O. Henry. You like hear about what that? I feel like I hear about that, and then I'm like, I don't know what that means. Who is O. You know Henry? The, the candy bar. Well, yeah, it's my favorite candy bar. It's, my it's uh, peanuts, caramel, fudge. Yeah, it's like a snick. In my opinion, whenever people say what's a no Henry like, I just say it's a Snickers, but like ten times better. No nougat. Yeah. No nougat. Yeah. I think I think O Henry's story was that he. Hold on. Let's see. <laughs> the writer, the writer's own life had more than a touch of color and irony. Born William Sidney Porter in Greensboro, North Carolina, eighteen sixty-two. He worked on a Texas ranch, then as a bank teller in Austin, then as a reporter for the Houston Post. Adversity struck, however, when he was indicted for embezzlement of bank funds. He flew to New Orleans and to Honduras before he was tried, convicted, and imprisoned for the crime in 1898. I don't know if, that, I don't know if you can say that's adversity striking. That sounds yeah. like he was convicted he of caught. a crime. <laughs> <laughs> in prison, he began writing stories of Central America and the American Southwest that soon became popular with magazine readers. After hmm. his release, he moved to New York City, where he continued writing stories under the pen name O. Henry. Yeah, I feel like there's there's definitely some tavern in New York that I've been to more than once that's like on the side of it. It said like this is the bar that O. Henry made famous. Like maybe that, that might be the one of the taverns in near Gramercy Park. But uh, yeah, I don't know much about that guy. But yeah, I don't know. Chuck it. Who cares? O. Henry. Right. It's a it's yeah like I said thrift edition. It's like eighty pages or something. Hmm. All right, next one. Let's go right to the first sentence. A melody is heard played upon a flute. Mm. And then the only the music of the flute is left on the darkening stage as over the house, the hard towers of the apartment buildings rise into sharp focus and the curtain falls. Wow. So they reference the flute in the beginning and the end. And I'll right? Let Is you that know what I heard? That, yeah, yeah. And I'll let you know that those were uh, in italics. Hmm. It's a tough one because I'm inclined to reward the author for their um, cohesive nature. But it, you know, getting a good first and last. Those were pretty good first and last. Sounds something vaguely like Peter Panish. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but I, I'm inclined to reward the author for keeping it together first and last. So I'm going to say, keep it. What is it? This is, uh, death of a salesman by Arthur Miller. So that was like a play. It was like play instruction. Right. Yeah. You should keep death of a salesman. It's old one too. It's like, uh, I think this is a, uh, it's a Viking print from the, no, 1958, I think. Yeah. Wow. No, 68. No, yeah. 68. Keep, keep it. Yeah, I like anyway, Death of a Salesman. Death cool. of a Salesman is also good to keep around. I think I actually do have a copy of Death of the Salesman because it comes up. It's like one of those things like the Bible, you know, where it's like it does like actually come. There's like many references in Seinfeld to Death of a Salesman. Yeah. Salesman. It kind of comes up every once in a while. So 
It's a good thing. If you haven't, did you, were you like required to read it in school or something? Uh, I don't remember if I read it in school, but I have, I know I've read it outside of that. Yeah. Um, you should read it again. Cause obviously since it's a play, it only takes like an hour to read <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> or like two hours or something. And it's, um, it's cool. It's definitely cool. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep that one. All right. Next one. Is, number four. Is this our number four? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I hope you will be ready to own publicly whenever you shall be called to it that by your great and frequent urgency you prevailed on me to publish a very loose and uncorrect account of my travels. First sentence there. Mm -hmm. Last sentence. I dwell the longer upon this subject from the desire I have to make the society of an English Yahoo by any means not insupportable, and therefore... I here entreat those who have any tincture of this absurd vice that they will not presume to appear in my sight. <laughs> hmm. Nice long sentences. Yeah. Can you give me another lifeline and read something from the middle? Sure. I'll give you some more hints. This is a this is considered a classic. Okay. Uh, the, my copy has a sticker on it that says now a major film, and I don't remember the film. Ooh. I'm sure it's been adapted a bunch of different times, but. Okay. When I came to mine own house for which I was forced to inquire, one of the servants opening the door, I bent down to go in like a goose under a gate for fear of striking my head. Hmm. <laughs> Bizarre. So it's English, it has kind of intricate long sentences, and it was a major motion picture, but such an insignificant movie that Mark didn't even remember it. Mm. I'm, a, I'm, I'm aware of other adaptations, I just don't remember a major film. Okay. You want me to describe the cover? No, uh, the thing that I'm going to say is like it's okay to chuck it is because... I don't like books that have the major motion picture sticker on it. <laughs> I don't think any bibliophile does end up buying those. You know, like all the Lord of the Rings books that have like Viggo Mortensen on them and Orlando yeah. Bloom. It's like no one wants those editions. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I just I, I I definitely understand the compulsion even though we may be judging a book by its cover too much, like it's a thing on your shelf where it's like, I don't want this like thing. That's like a Oprah book club yeah. major motion picture sticker. So yeah, tell me what it is, but I've already prejudged that it's okay to throw out this edition. Okay. This is uh Gulliver Gulliver's travels by Jonathan oh, Swift. Oh, Gulliver's travel. Yeah. That's a, mo that's a major movie. I think they made a weird when, one. With, what, what movie though? Yeah. I what, think they made a that? weird one with Jack Black. Oh really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a there's an edition of Gulliver's Travels where it's Jack Black. I I like think of <clears throat> Mupp the Muppets doing it or something. That might be Treasure <laughs> Island, but I know that in the Page Master they did like a Gulliver's Travels like mm. part. Page Master. That's a yeah. good movie. Um but I I tried reading this, I didn't really enjoy it. It was like a lot of it was like Almost like court proceedings about little people. His travels. Yeah, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know. 
So yeah, I can ditch that one. Ditch it. All right. Last I feel one. like I feel like uh, you know, like there's Gulliver's Travels, and then like the real ones are reading. Um, what's his name? Gargantuan Pantagruel. Oh, Rabelais. Rabelais. Yeah, it's like that's the cool book about weird-sized people. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one here. Uh, first sentence. These are the central questions that the great philosopher David Hume said are of unspeakable importance. How does the mind work? And beyond that, why does it work in such a way and not another? And from these two considerations together, what is man's ultimate nature? Hmm. And then last one. But at another level, and in a new age, it also constructs the mythology of scientific materialism, guided by the corrective devices of the scientific method addressed with precise and deliberately effective appeal to the deepest needs of human nature and kept strong by the blind hopes that the journey on which we are now embarked will be farther and better than the one just completed. Lengthy. Lengthy. All right. Somewhere from the middle as well. <laughs> okay. Uh, but in human beings, soft core altruism has been carried to elaborate extremes. I feel like this is some sort of like philosophy book that you're just not going to invest in, you know, <laughs> like I, I, I think just like all, you know, white college kids, you are like vaguely fascinated by the idea of like going to school, like just for philosophy. And for a while I had like some philosophical books, like, you know, kind of taking up room on my bookshelf of just like, yeah, I'm going to read like Kant and uh, Hegel and like all these like intense <laughs> philosophers. But then really like once you start digging down into it, it's sort of, it just doesn't feel, I don't know. I feel like I, I, I've, uh, I've definitely talked about this, not on the podcast, but with friends and everything. And like philosophy feels some, sometimes vaguely to me, like one of those things that you either grow out of or like intensely grow into. Does that make sense? Yeah. Where it's like, it either becomes your career and like everything that you think about, or you're just like, I don't really care about thinking about that anymore. Cause I got other shit going on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I'm saying I'm, I think that this is like some weird philosophy book, um, and that you were inspired at one point to be like, yeah, I can get into some deep thinking, but then now it just doesn't. It's not worthy of the shelf. So I say it's okay. What is it? Exactly. It was some wishful yeah. thinking that you know, yeah, I'm gonna read this yeah. and get smarter. I'm gonna become a real scholar. Really think about how my mind functions. So this is uh, On Human Nature by Edward O. Wilson, and it was the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for general nonfiction in um, 1978. Interesting. So a 70s philosophy <laughs> experience. It's, uh, so it's, it's uh, labeled as sociology and social Darwinism as far as it's like hmm. library tags. Nice. But I think I can get rid of it. <laughs> Pass uh, it on to the next, uh, you know, ambitious young lad. Hopeful, yeah. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> cool. So you've cleared up. What did we clear up? Four out of five? Yeah, mortality rate. 
is uh, 20%. <laughs> 20. No, the mortality rate is 80%. Oh, yeah. The survival rate is 20%. Survival rate is 20. Nice. Much like the coronavirus. So Arthur, Arthur Miller survived the culling. Yes. Which is, I think, that's, that's good. Yeah. I'm proud of that. Uh, so episode 45 means that Mark is going first. All right. I'm ready. So this week, I, I, I read another book that's kind of viewed as a classic. You know, we're, we're taking down the classics here and also trying to, you know, branch out to other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so according to Wikipedia, this book, uh, the modern library ranked this one 79th on its list of the hundred best English language novels of the 20th century, mm-hmm. but they compiled that list in 1998. So interesting. A little premature. Very premature. Uh, so do you have any guesses? Number 79, something that's not super, super high in the list. But number 79, which list is this again? The Modern Library's list of the 100 best English language novels of the 20th century. So this is a very early, early 20th century. No, I have no idea. Number 79. (laughs) Hmm. uh, This week I read 1908's A Room with a View by the English author... Uh, Edward Morgan or E.M. Forster. E.M. Forster. Okay, I know that. I know E.M. Forster, but I don't know anything else. And you said 1908? Yeah, 1908. Good year. Yeah. It's another example of, you know, I've seen seen this book so many times and kind of been drawn into it, I, I guess, by the name. You know, it's I've, mm-hmm. it's been referenced in other things, or the name kind of just have has an aura of its own, like you know, a room with a view. I don't know. It, yeah, definitely. It's interesting, and um, actually, one of the references that popped in my head initially was actually a, a death metal song from 1990 uh, by the band Atheist. So mm. I, after I read the book, I was like, all right, I'm gonna look up these lyrics. Um, that I didn't really remember what they were just to see if it borrowed any inspiration from or had any connection to the book. So I'd like to read a, a poem here that are <laughs> lyrics to this song. A poem by atheists. Yes. Lie half alive in my hospital bed or to some of you that may be half dead. IV machines running through my veins. Man-made life restores my withered remains. A mirror of sorts appears before my being. My human end has come, that's all that I see. Now that my soul is set free, I'm classified dead now, it seems. My destiny plunders on through. I'm granted a room with a view. Nice. First verse there. Nurses and interns gathering at my side, I try to yell at them, I haven't died. As I project, my soul emerges from fear. I soon remember all the reasons I'm here. How strange I thought that I could see myself. A different light, sight, sound, and smell. A different experience, a new world, almost unhuman to me. See them cart me away. I venture to a new day. Human inhibitions are gone. Emotions are few. I'd pass up any life for a room with a view. Hmm. 
So yeah, just beautiful. Um, beautiful. <laughs> and so as it turns out, uh, this uh, it has nothing to do with the book, and they are just borrowing the name. <laughs> Interesting, because I would say I, if it did have to do with the book, I would say that that atheist song sounds a lot like um, Johnny Got His Gun. Yeah. But in Johnny Got His Gun, he also can't see. So. Mm-hmm. There's no point of the view. Right. And so, yeah, this has nothing to do with the book, but they did nail one thing here, and it 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 is kind of centered on being literally getting a room with a view, and that's at, at least a start. At least so that's start. how this actual story begins. Okay. You know, uh, it's about a young young woman named Lucy, She's visiting Florence, Italy with her cousin, Charlotte. And when they get to the hotel in which they were promised a room facing out to the river, uh, the only rooms available, you know, face the courtyard or the inner courtyard. Mm -hmm. And that's when this kind of father and son duo, uh, Mr. Emerson and his son, George, who they kind of, they're kind of outcasts a little bit. Well, they're, they're involved in the scene, but like, they stick out in a few ways, like politically and socially and kind of otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're they're kind of unique. But they, they step in and suggest that they can, you know, we'll trade rooms with you. Because they have the, the rooms that face okay. out to the river. So yeah. it is essentially the story starts about just having a room with a view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from that point, the story becomes, you know, Lucy, Lucy venturing out into Florence... Um, the bunch of bunch of different characters, but kind of continuing to run into those Emersons, especially the son George, who's mm-hmm. you know similar age to her, and eventually Lucy forms like a sort of frowned upon she some frowned upon feelings for for George. Okay, and that's so that's like the first part of the book, and there's a lot of references in it to specific pieces of art and stuff like that. You know, like how how I guess our reference for that is like Murakami, right? Yeah, it's yeah. always like. You know, pointing out songs or artwork and, and stuff like that. Did you find yourself looking things up when you were reading this, like the painting? A couple times, yeah, like some yeah. sculptures and stuff. There's actually um, there's a book that's been sitting in my Amazon cart for a while that I just haven't been able to pull the trigger on the price point. But it's all the paintings <laughs> that appear. It's all the paintings that appear in reference in Proust. Oh, nice. So, like, in I order. feel like more books should come out like that, you know, where it's like, this is everything. Like, Companion. Yeah, like, uh, there, I was, like, blown away once. I can't believe I never mentioned this on the podcast, but I was blown away once. Uh, in There's, like, a section of the Brooklyn Botanical Garden in New York that is a garden of every, like, flower referenced in Shakespeare. <laughs> really? So it's like the flower or the plant is sitting in front of you, and then there's, like, a little, like, uh, you know quote thing that says him Snippet like of him yeah. describing it and it's really cool it's like oh yeah like you you can see like the poetry that he was writing about this particular like you know flower yeah i mean that's how deep his knowledge is but anyway continue <laughs> yeah roses are red violets are blue exactly that was him. yeah totally and it makes so much sense when you're there <laughs> they're they're red and, and they're blue <laughs> um so yeah, so that's the first part of the book. You know, they're in Florence, uh, taking in the culture, and kind of running into each other a lot. Um, so again, fast forward to the return to their native England, where Lucy has 
kind of promised her hand in marriage to this super annoying snob named uh, mm-hmm. Cecil. And he is a very effective, annoying character. He's got fuckboy he potential. Oh, yeah. He's a big, big time. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, as it turns out, Shout Cecil out to Fuck actually... Boys of Literature, our fellow podcast. But yeah. uh, what what's Cecil's deal? <laughs> <laughs> he's a, he's a big time snob, and just the way he talks, he's like, it, it's. Uh, I need to find like a specific moment, but there there might be. I, I think I might actually be reading something like that. Let's uh, let's see. But anyways, he's annoying, and you kind of it it kind of builds up to them you know, on the path to marriage and, and whatnot. But then you find out that Cecil is actually familiar with the Emersons. Like he's talking about, oh, my friends are coming, my friends are coming or whatever. And mm. uh, he's actually talking about the Emersons. And I guess you can't really say all hell breaks loose when you're talking about this like classic <laughs> English romantic <laughs> novel. But whatever the equivalent of all hell breaking loose is, you know, that that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Um. So that's kind of the the plot, but I'll first comment that I didn't really find the romantic aspects of this book as as impactful as let's say like my my example I guess would be a Thomas Hardy kind of novel. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt a little bit too proper maybe in how the sort of feelings were described or introduced, mm-hmm. and that could be just because I'm like a dummy for nuance and and missed a lot of stuff, but. Um, no, I don't, I don't think know. so. I mean, like I felt this it, that that was one of like the powerful things. Remember how I was like totally obsessed with Madame Bovary? Yeah, and it's like that novel is very sort like even for its age, it's very kind of like the secrecy feels like you know titillating and stuff like that. Where you're like, whoa, like you know, like good descriptions of romantic feelings. So you know, if it falls short, no matter what era it's from, I don't think you can just be like, oh, it's old, so I didn't really get the romance. It's like, nah. Yeah. No. Okay, yeah, I agree with that. So I'd say trust your trust your feelings on that. <laughs> All right. Um, I'd say uh, the main theme that's usually paired with this book or talked about is kind of the difference between the vibrant Italian art and culture and kind of like the conservative, strict English society at the time, like the Edwardian era. Because mm-hmm. um, that's like how the book is divided. And probably the, the second most common thing I saw when doing like some research about this book and the one that I kind of saw a lot more of myself when I was reading it, but that this book is definitely like, a, it's a coming of age story about Lucy um, dealing with the restrictions of class and society in, in this, in this English, you know, era. And it was also, it's kind of refreshing in the book that George, like George Emerson, um, the kind of the love interest, he wasn't like a Disney prince or whatever, but he was kind of more of like a, more of like a philosopher, just kind of encouraging Lucy to kind of think for herself instead of being influenced so much by society. Hmm. Um, they do, they do have some kind of Disney ass moments, but and I think that's the one that I wanted to read from right now, just to give you a little bit of idea for the, uh, the tone or the style and then some kind of Disney moment right here. And this is, they're venturing somewhere in Florence, not in the city though. I think this is something else. Okay. 
They proceeded briskly through the undergrowth, which became thicker and thicker. They were nearing the edge of the promontory, and the view was stealing around them. Another reference to the view. But the brown network of the bushes shattered it into countless pieces. She was rejoicing, rejoicing in her escape from dullness. Not a step, not a twig was unimportant to her. The view was forming at last. She could discern the river, the golden plain, other hills. At the same moment, the ground gave way, and with a cry, she fell out of the wood. Light and beauty enveloped her. She had fallen onto a little open terrace, which was covered with violets from end to end. Courage, cried her companion, now standing some six feet above. Courage and love. She did not answer. From her feet, the ground sloped sharply into view, and violets ran down in rivulets and streams and cataracts, irrigating the hillside with blue, eddying, eddying round the, the tree stems, collecting into pools in the hollows, covering the grass with spots of azure foam. But never again were they in such profusion. This terrace was the wellhead, the primal source whence beauty gushed out to water the earth. Standing at its brink like a swimmer who prepares was the good man. But he was not the good man that she had expected, and he was alone. George had turned at the sound of her arrival. For a moment he contemplated her as one who had fallen out of heaven. He saw radiant joy in her face. He saw the flowers beat against her dress in blue waves. The bushes above them closed. He stepped quickly forward and kissed her. Before she could speak, almost before she could feel, a voice called, Lucy, Lucy, Lucy. The silence of life had been broken by Miss Bartlett, who stood brown against the view. That's her cousin interrupting her uh, Disney moment. Hmm. Yes, hills of rolling flowers. Yeah. Hey, it's got to be hills of rolling flowers somewhere. I had a hard time when I was reading that scene, like trying to understand the geography there. They're like on a cliff or something. Yeah, it's like, it, like, a, like I felt the same way where it was like there's a terrace, but there's like a hill, but there's whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, um, I think I'll get to my one star review now. And this comes from user Ellie, uh, who did not finish the book and gave up at 63%. Wow. I really thought I would love this book. After all, I love so many other books that, that kind of similar, but this was a struggle, and I just can't read it anymore. It's supposed to be one of the most beautifully written books ever, and I see that. The writing is really beautiful. But it was almost too beautiful for me. I didn't understand what was happening 99% of the time, and I kept getting characters confused. I kept pushing on because I was waiting for the moment that I would fall in love with the story, but at this point, it's clearly not going to happen. I'm sorry to everyone who loves this, but this just made me want to put my head through several walls. Nice. And that's, yeah, some honest... <laughs> uh, <laughs> she even apologized to everyone who likes it. You know, very <laughs> we saw a little bit of that in what she was talking about. It's like there's so many like flowers and like amazing, you know, whatever that you're like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. I saw a little bit of that. Cool. All yeah, right, check out that atheist song. Yeah, check out that atheist song. Uh, <laughs> does, does this mean that it's my turn? Yeah. All right, so I'm returning to uh, this week. Uh, I don't know. this. My review this week might be kind of like short and sweet, but uh, I'm returning to an author that we often talk about. We have already talked about him on the podcast once this current episode. And, uh, but it goes along with that theme that we were talking about of just continually looking things up. Um, 
And I guess the reason why I'm doing another Murakami novel, yeah, that's what I'm doing this week, is because looking back, you know, like when we did the the first episode of 2019 and we were looking back on which, uh, you know, books we've done, I always felt it was weird that I had only done... I had only covered Killing Commentador by Murakami. It's like he like I've read so many of his books, but that and was not the only further back. Yeah, and that was the only yeah. one I had covered just because it was recently in my brain. So I'm gonna talk this uh this week about um Kafka on the Shore. Kafka on the Shore. Which I've frequently said on the podcast and in life that this to me is the peak Murakami novel. Like as much as I think a lot of people, rightfully so, get introduced to Murakami from the Wind Up Bird Chronicle, you've read that, right? Yeah. And have you read Kafka on the Shore? No, I don't have it. Oh, okay. So Wind Up Bird Chronicle is sort of like the, wow, there's like this amazing author, Murakami. You should be in his like most like classic, like very successful book is Wind Up Bird Chronicle. And then Kafka on the Shore comes after that. Um, it comes up. I don't know. Let me look up really quickly because I think it might come like right after. Um, but I just have to look up. No, it comes up. So Wind Up Bird Chronicle is 1994, 1995. Then he writes Kafka on the Shore in 2002. It's like seven years later. And in between, he published a short book called Sputnik Sweetheart. But it's still in that same sort of like, there's like an era of Murakami that, in my opinion, is sort of like peak, you know, like... And just from the description of Kafka on the Shore, you can kind of get a sense that, like, you know, it's an alternating story. It it goes, it's one of those books that goes chapter to chapter. Like, chapter one is about this story. Chapter two is about this other story. And they're not, re- like, they're not super related at first, but then it gets kind of, like, closer and closer as the novel mm-hmm. comes together and how they're related to each other. Um, so let me just read the plot summary. I mean, this is a shitty book report after all. So let me just read the plot summaries <laughs> from Wikipedia. So the odd number chapters tell the story of 15 year old, uh, Kafka's 15 year old main character who has renamed himself Kafka after he runs away from his father's house to kind of escape some Oedipal feelings and embark on a quest to find his mother and sister who left the house when he was young. Like, he's basically never met them. And after a series of adventures, he finds shelter in a quiet, private library in Takamatsu. So basically, he finds this idyllic library setting where it's like, in the mountains, there's this epic library. um, And it is run by this woman who's very distant and aloof named Miss Saki Saiki, and the intelligent and more welcoming Oshima, who is like the guy, basically like the employee of the library. And Oshima is like a really cool character. He basically like realizes that this kid is like struggling. And while you like aren't necessarily just allowed to hang out in a library, like on a permanent basis, he realizes that he's like going through like a life crisis And he's, like, too young to be out on his own. So he kind of, like, takes him under his wing and is, like, kind of like a badass. And uh, this is something that is... Are there other people around? There are people who come in and out of the library, but it's, like, one of those places where it's, like, it's epic and it's in the mountains. So, like, you're alone there reading. So the way that Kafka spends his time is that he is 
reading an unabridged version of 1001 Nights by Richard Francis Burton. And then he's also reading the collective works of Natsumi Soseki, which is a very famous Japanese novelist that I haven't read yet. So actually, upon like, I didn't freshly read this book for the podcast. It's been, you know, it's just been my favorite Murakami novel for forever. Um, But upon doing this research, it goes along with that theme that we were talking about, of like looking up things in Murakami novels and everything. Because on doing the research, I was like, oh, I forgot that he was when he was in the library, he was reading, supposedly reading the collected works of this Japanese novelist, Natsumi Soseki. So basically, as soon as I was researching for the podcast, I opened up the Wikipedia of this other supposedly epic Japanese novelist that becomes before that comes before all my other heroes like Mishima and uh, Ozu and stuff like that. Um, No, not Ozu. Osamu Dazai. Yeah. And uh, and so I ordered one of his books immediately. <laughs> so spoiler nice. alert, that's probably going to be in the podcast at some point. He was at this guy, this Japanese novelist, Natsume Soseki, was actually on the thousand yen note from 1984 to 2002, 2004. So he, he was a big guy in Japanese culture. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, to investigate that guy. But switching gears back into Kafka on the Shore... Uh, the even number chapters tell this disor- the story of this guy named Nakata who was in a mysterious accident post World War II when he was like a young child. It's basically like described in the book that like a giant light like you know basically flashed in the sky. That could either be like a like a reference to you know the the nuclear bombs in Japan or it could be a reference to you know who knows. But all, like with Murakami, it obviously becomes like a thing about some mysterious alternate reality. And uh, Nakata is an interesting character because basically since childhood, he's lost the ability to have like any sort of actual memory and he can't like read or write or anything. He's basically like a like the actual literal term of like a dumb person, like kind of like doesn't like he, you know, has very limited faculties, but the thing that does remain about Nakata is that he can speak with cats. Really? <laughs> so his current job, his current job as like a man who's like basically grandpa age is that his job is that he goes around Japan and finds people's missing cats. So that's crazy Murakami, right? I mean, even the <laughs> even the even the characters in the book in, in the Wikipedia, the character like descriptions are broken up between humans and cats. There's six different cats <laughs> that are <laughs> that are characters in the book that they can they don't really talk like as much as the humans do, but basically Nakata has the talent for kind of like tracking them down and talking with them and stuff like that. And what I like, I think what I like about Kafka on the Shore is you you've heard me say before about how like Murakami has this a lot of themes in his books are about like slipping into like another reality you know kind of like going into this like sort of um, limbo sort of space and the thing that I like about Kafka on the shore if I remember correctly somebody can like you know call me out on Twitter or something but if I remember correctly from Kafka on the shore the thing that I like about it is that they don't actually like slip into that world completely. What they do is like, these are people who have visited an alternate reality, but it's changed their lives in like very subtle ways. So like in one part of the book, there's reference to how like 
that woman who owns the library, Miss Psyche, her shadow is like different than other people's shadows, like the way that it functions and everything. And it's the same with Nakata. So it's like people who have like traveled to this alternate state are kind of like spiritually altered. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, it's small. Yeah, like so it's like a it's like a very kind of like minor flavor of that versus like in some other Murakami novels, it's like and then he was in an alternate universe that was really weird, and you're like, okay, like I just want to get past this part back into the awesome part. Um, <laughs> again, you know, everything in Kafka on the Shore functions as extreme readability. I was even saying to my, I didn't end up doing this, but for the novel, I was even saying to myself, kind of like yesterday or the day before yesterday when i knew i was going to do it i was like i bet you i could read like half of it right now if i wanted to you know like if you, if you just sat yeah. down you could read about probably like half the book before even coming to do the shitty book report i think it would probably be a good idea to reread it because it's definitely to me i think it's the number one murakami novel and i've read several of his books um another cool thing there's like a lot of like cool stuff about um the publishing of the book itself, like apparently, uh, what like because it is so, um, you know, like partially, meta, like very metaphorical, and like also like just like all these cool like metaphors and stuff throughout the book. Apparently, when his publishers first published it, they allowed the public to submit questions about the novel, and uh, Murakami himself, there was about eight thousand submissions, and he responded to twelve hundred of them. <laughs> So it's like kind of like that's like kind of interesting, like a little window into something that, you know, he doesn't really give many interviews or anything like that. So that kind of like stories about his responses and stuff are out there. Yeah, you got to catch him jogging usually, right? Right. Yeah, you got to catch him (laughs) jogging somewhere in Japan. Just catch up to him and start asking. I'm sure he would love that if you if you you track down his yeah track down his running route, he would probably uh, you know blaze past you or something. But. yeah, I mean, it's just like a really cool book. It has some of the signature Murakami, um, you know, in, intensely insane uh, sex scenes that are <laughs> that are graphic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're hurtling towards those kind of things. But it's just like, it's just good. And it's basically like, if I were to say, this, if someone basically gets introduced to the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, I would say, is like probably 10 to 15% more complex than Kafka on the Shore. If you remember in Wind-Up Bird Chronicle, you remember how there's that whole like subplot about World War II. Yeah, and like and it's, you know, it's very mysterious. Yeah, there's like all these like things. So I feel like Kafka on the Shore is basically in that same pocket of the same era of his career and the same like amount of readability, but it's more like pared down and just like better. You know, like Wind Up Bird Chronicle is like, I'm going to throw a bunch of shit at you and see what sticks. And like, this is really crazy. And it's just a great book. But Kafka on the Shore is kind of more like, okay, like the same amount of that, but more careful and more like exacting where you're like, the mystery really feels like, whoa, this is like awesome. Um, And you're kind of just always wondering what's going on. And and that's like a cool thing. Like Murakami said about the book himself, um, you know, that it's basically what he said about it is like, I'm interested in posing questions, not really giving answers. 
So, you know, this is a quote from the interview that's also on Wikipedia where Murakami says, Kafka on the Shore contains several riddles, but there aren't any solutions provided. Instead, several of these riddles combine, and through their interaction, the possibility of a solution takes shape. And from this solution, takes uh, the takes will be different for each reader. To put it another way, the riddles function as part of the solution. It's hard to explain, but that's the kind of novel I set out to write. So it's basically like a mystery with no actual ending and kind of just like that really great Murakami feeling. Um, yeah, and I really loved it. And I wonder if I can find, uh, as I quickly scan through here, because I'm always kicking myself for going back uh, going back and, you know, when you read, when you look at books that you read before you did the podcast and I didn't really write too much in them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, why wasn't I writing in these? Then I could just like easily, you know, pick this up. Um, <laughs> Take your notes from earlier, yeah. But, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's it's not too hard to find. I was literally just uh, paging through the book and I found what I think I wanted to find because I remember very clearly in my mind, um, you know, Murakami is one of those people who he's a brilliant way. He ends chapters very well. And I've t- told you many times that I... Uh, I always look forward to that last few words in a Murakami book. Um, who else do you think ends chapters? I think Stephen King ends chapters really well. Who else ends chapters really well? Yeah. Well, Stephen King does it well, and he also does it often because it's always chopped up into smaller chapters. Right. Um, which... It's hard to say. I think I think Thomas Hardy does a good job at that, too. Um, but it's longer chapters, probably. Right. Okay, so I'm going to read just I found like the end of one like Murakami chapter where it's like, yo, it's just so readable. You just want to keep going. So another thing that's interesting about this book is uh, Kafka has an alter ego within his. So he ran away from home, gave himself a new name, which is Kafka, which is in reference to the author in the book. explicitly. That's what I needed to ask is my my I assumed that this book was like heavily about Franz Kafka and like had some connection to metamorphosis or whatever the trial or, or something like yeah, how it does. deep is it it's not super deep but it's definitely like so basically what happens is kafka runs away from home and then renames himself kafka explicitly it says in the book like as like a tribute to you know kafka the author and murakami it, he's definitely one of those guys right who will just say in an interview like I, you know, was reading Kafka, then I started reading a story about a 15-year-old boy, and here is the result. You know, like, that, like, very explicit references to it. So I'm sure if you did, like, a deep dive study, it would be, like, an easy comparison between several of Kafka's works. But um, in the book, uh, the boy Kafka has, the main character, has an alter ego named Crow that's inside of his head that kind of, like, gives him sometimes good advice and sometimes not so good advice and apparently kafka the the word crow is somehow related as well but i'll read you the short paragraph which is the very end of a chapter on page 205 in my edition so uh just a short thing and, and you know you can see how readable it is so 
Distance won't solve anything, the boy named Crow says. Well, you definitely need a hiding place, Oshima says. That's the guy who owns, who works at the library. Beyond that, there's not much I can say. I suddenly realize how exhausted I am. I lean against Oshima and he wraps his arm around me. I push my face up against his flat chest. Oshima, I don't want to do other those things. I don't want to kill my father or be with my mother and sister. Of course you don't, he replies, running his fingers through my short hair. How could you? Not even in dreams. Or in a metaphor, Oshima adds, or in an allegory or an analogy. He pauses and then says, if you don't mind, I'll stay with you here tonight. I can sleep on the chair. But I turn him down. I think I'm better off alone for a while. And I tell him. Oshima brushes the strands of hair off of his forehead. After hesitating a bit, he says, I know I'm a hopeless, damaged, homosexual woman. And if that's what's bothering you, no, I say, that's not it at all. I just need some time to think alone. Too many things have happened all at once. That's all. Oshima writes down a phone number on a memo pad. In the middle of the night if you feel like talking to anybody call this number don't hesitate okay i'm a light sleeper anyway and i thank him then there's a pause and it says that's the night i see a ghost and <laughs> end, end chapter a g- 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 ghost a ghost okay. and then like of course you're like okay well i'm gonna read all the way through the next chapter because that's like because it switches to nakata talking to cats and you're like i need to know the chapter where he sees a ghost so then you go on to the next chapter and then the chapter 23 a whole chapter later you know like 10 pages later i don't know if ghost is the right word but it definitely isn't something of this world that much i can tell at a glance so it's like what the fuck murakami yeah, goblin I know, always kind of goblins. spurring you forward to read the next book. So huge page turner. Uh, I can, obviously I can't recommend Kafka on the Shore enough. If someone's if you've read Wind Up Burn Chronicle and want something even more precise and mysterious, then read Kafka on the Shore. It's just pff, number one Murakami in my opinion. I haven't read it because I haven't found a used copy anywhere. So that means people are holding on to it. Right, yeah. I mean, my copy is used. It's a nice, tattered-up sort of edition. It's from Vintage, which we all know is, you know, a great imprint. And the cover is really cool, too. It's like this Japanese guy's... It almost looks like a Magritte painting, the cover. I don't really know if it is uh, cover designed by John Gall. No. Kafka on the shore. Very good. So I have my one-star review in front of me here, and uh, this is one of the most brutal one-star reviews I think I've ever read, so that's why I chose it. (laughs) Kafka on the Shore, one star from Vanessa on Goodreads says, Few books have infected me with boredom-induced ADD, the desire to gnaw my own foot off at the ankle, and and the state of mind you might experience if forced to sit upon a nest of hornets while watching your home being burglarized, but this was one of them. It took me until page 70 to stop wanting to hop up and rearrange the spice cupboard or my stock sock drawer every few sentences. But then the feeling returned at page 243. Only 244 pages to go. From then on, my hatred and resentment of this book progressively grew like a dead cow bloating in the heat. Oh, God. And then Vanessa goes on to write, I couldn't find anything that was actually succinct one-star review on Kafka, but then goes on to write uh, like a whole other page of pure hate uh, for Kafka on the Shore. But Vanessa, I don't think you could be more wrong because this is the best Murakami in my humble opinion of having read like probably at this point like 10 of his books. So Nice. All right. So, everybody, thanks for listening. This has been Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday, (coughs) or at least most Sundays, on SoundCloud, Spotify, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, 
Just search SBR the podcast. You could also email us at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. Give us your comments, corrections, suggestions, or however you're feeling, and we'll see you next time. See ya. Yeah. It's any any given Sunday. Any given Sunday. Okay. Yeah, when we give you the podcast. Otherwise. Right. <laughs> Peace. <laughs>